Welcome to the eighth edition of the Exact Target Developer Podcast. I'm Roger Brinkley. And in this edition of the podcast, we'll do a feature interview with Jeff Roars on his book, Audience, Marketing in the Age of Subscribers, Fans, and Followers. But before we get to that, let's turn first to the events section. And in the events section on March 19th, the Toronto Exact Target community will be uh, having a meeting. Uh, Kelly Andrews will be up there talking about AmScripts and APIs. March 25th, the Indianapolis Developer Meetup. Kelly Andrews will be leading another session on AmScripts and APIs there. And on April 8th, I will be doing a product roadmap for the Denver Exact Target community. On April 17th, the Indianapolis Exact Target community will be meeting together and talk about AmScripts and data extensions. Turning now over to our feature interview, and in our feature interview, had an opportunity to speak with Jeff Roars last week about his new book, Audience. Jeff is the lead of the Marketing Insights team at Exact Target, and this book is uh, kind of exciting as it talks about and explores the rise of proprietary audience development as marketing responsibilities and the flip side of that in the content marketing coin. So let's turn directly to that interview. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well, and boy, your book is, uh, I was really impressed with your book. It looks like it's a really good piece of work. Thank you very much. It was uh, a lot of fun to do, and... Uh... And it was great to have it out in the ether, if you will. So I'm getting feedback from, from folks. In the book, you call it proprietary audience uh, development. I can understand not calling it owned audience development, but why proprietary? So it's a, it's a nuanced idea. Um, you know, to a lot of folks, they are confusing audience development with paid-owned and earned media. And as you were indicating, they're also referring you know, to audiences as being owned. And you can own media. I can own a website. Uh, you can own this podcast, but I can never own an audience. They can get up, they can leave, they can unsubscribe, tune out, unfollow, unfriend at any time. So what I was trying to do with the notion of proprietary audience development was impress upon the reader the idea that there is some exclusivity to it, that you as a company can develop these direct audiences with whom you and you alone can communicate. Uh, however, there is still an idea that you do not own them and that ultimately, whether they are uh, a part of your audience is up to the permission they grant you. That's the fundamental change uh, in marketing. And it's interesting that we're speaking right now because we're coming up on the 15th anniversary of the release of Seth Godin's Permission Marketing. And if you go back and you read that book, you realize how kind of prescient it was. And at the, at the time, it was really talking about the Permission Marketing uh, available through, through the email channel. But now, if you look at the social channel, the mobile channel, e if you even look at you know cookie-based advertising, it's all moving towards or has moved towards a permission-based model where the consumer is ultimately in control of whether that channel is on or off to you as a brand. And you have to honor that because if you don't, there are negative ramifications, be it in the form of bad or non-existent deliverability, uh, be it in the form of you know being blocked or not distributed in a news feed, um, you know, those types of things that, that can not only hurt you with that one-on-one -on -one relationship, but can hurt you in terms of the entirety of that of the, the audience that you have in that particular channel. Now, one of the things that you talk about in the book is you have this core belief that an audience should be treated as an asset. Is this kind of a systemic problem that companies aren't aware that their audience is really an asset? Uh, I think it is. I, and I think it's born of the fact that that is a big change that's happened in, in marketing the last 20 years. We're still in a, we're still in kind of a, a campaign based paid media advertising mindset. And that is that we can 
buy audience attention anytime we want simply by going out and you know uh, purchasing some time on television or you know a banner ad or a social media ad or what have you and that has led both marketing and the executives to think of marketing as a cost center when in fact the fundamental change with permission marketing and with the building of these direct audiences is that marketing can now be an asset generator if i wanted 30 seconds of attention uh, on television during the Super Bowl this year, I would have had to pay Fox $4.5 million. That was the going rate for a 30-second ad. That's a real asset, right? Fox and NFL are sharing in, in the value created there. And it's created because they know 120 million people are going to be viewing. And so there's an assumption that they're, you know, a certain percentage are going to be paying attention. And that attention is at a premium because it is the Super Bowl. So you have this mass audience. And therefore, we pay for it because it is an asset. Yet, when you apply that logic to uh, an email subscriber list or um, YouTube subscribers or Facebook fans, uh, people tend to, especially executives, think of them as almost resources to be exploited rather than assets to be developed and to be invested in. And so what I'm trying to do with the book uh, audience is get marketers the ammunition they need to have that conversation with their CEO, their CFO, their CMO, to understand that, look, what we're doing is not just going through the motions and spending your money, not just as a cost center, but we're undertaking a really fundamentally different approach, much like a media company. We're trying to build audiences for the future. And if we do our jobs properly, we're not only selling in the moment, we are also going to be building an audience that's bigger for the future. So the next time we have something to say, it hopefully costs us less in paid media because we're going to have more uh, of this, uh, this audience uh, that is proprietary uh, hearing and hopefully amplifying our message out via a variety of different channels. And so, you know, a great example of this that a lot of folks are familiar with is Red Bull. If you look at Red Bull's subscriber count on YouTube, it's astronomical. They've got over 3.5 million subscribers on their YouTube channel because they're producing all of this, you know, amazing stream sport content and music content and all of these things. They're truly embracing the notion that they are a media producer. In fact, they have a media production arm. You look at their competition like Monster or some of the other energy drinks, you know, you're talking hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Which would you rather be? You know, I'd much rather be... Red Bull, where at the push of a button on a new campaign or a new piece of programming, it goes out to 3.5 million on the back of YouTube's emails than the guy who has only you know 400,000, let's say. So it is, it's, a, it's a shift, a subtle shift, and it's something that email marketers know kind of implicitly, but we haven't been communicating asset value. We've been just, just talking kind of the onesie-twosie ROI of campaign for so long. And so once we get up to that lifetime customer value and then you know, multiply that by the size of the audience, you begin to get the asset value I'm talking about. Now, you break down property audience into three parts, seekers, amplifiers, and joiners. Can you provide us with an insight into each one of those types? Sure. So as I was writing the book, I was trying to figure out, you know, how do you give language to this? Because um, that's one of the problems that we have is that we, we haven't really delineated the types of audiences we're going after. So the, the first entry-level audience is really a seeker. And that's an individual who's looking for uh, information or entertainment. We know them most frequently as a searcher on Google, as a listener on perhaps this podcast or a radio show, as a viewer on television or YouTube, 
or perhaps as a window shopper, you know, somebody who's just coming by your shop or, you know, browsing your website. They are seeking information or entertainment, and once that need is satiated, they're gone. Now, you hope you can convert them into a customer, but if you don't, you know, kind of serve them up with the content or, again, the entertainment they want, they're momentary. Again, they're and gone. They're not converted in any way. So what you're always trying to do with the seekers is get them into the funnel, right? Get them into either the sales funnel or a relationship funnel so that you can mature it into direct ways you can communicate. So seekers are, are momentary, and it, it really is hopefully a transitional type of relationship to become a part of another audience. The next group is amplifiers. And amplifiers are those folks who take your message and then share it with their audiences. They are audiences with audiences. And in fact, all of us have the potential to be amplifiers. If we retweet, if we share or comment or like on Facebook, uh, if we write articles, all of those things are activities of amplifiers. We have traditionally thought of amplification in marketing sense being a job of PR. The PR manages the relationship with uh, journalists, with, with analysts, with commentators. But now we also have bloggers and all of these, you know, social audiences who can amplify very quickly. The thing about amplifiers is that they are there for access and influence. So they want, you know, access to information that maybe not everybody has. And then they want influence. There's a little bit of ego in this, right? If I share, it's not just because I want to share. I also want to kind of have that content consumed and add benefit to you know my followers, my audience. As you look at that audience from a marketing perspective, you want to respect them. You want to give them some insights that not everybody has because it feeds the ego and, and increases the chance and the likelihood that they're going to share that with others. Uh, and that's the heart and soul of going viral. And that's the heart and soul of you know so much of the sharing culture we see on Facebook today. But again, like seekers, temporal, short term, there and gone, with seekers, with amplifiers, we're really trying to convert them into joiners, which is the third audience. And that's kind of the VIP audience. That's the holy grail. But the, the top of the chart is the customer. Customer is the ultimate joiner because they join with their credit card, their wallet, or what have you. But short of getting a customer, I want to get that person to be a subscriber, a fan, or a follower, but preferably, preferably a subscriber because a subscriber, I control the cadence, the timing, and essentially the button that I push to send that message. A fan on Facebook, a follower on Twitter, Instagram, those are also very, very good things. Uh, but these joiners, what they want from us is some sort of convenience or utility, right? They have signed up or given us permission and opened up a channel because they want content sent directly to them in a channel that's convenient for them and they want whatever relevance and timeliness is being promised. And in fact, they probably want even more than that. They, they expect us to use their data in a positive way to improve the convenience and utility provided by whatever communications we're, we're sending. Those joiners are the heart and soul of permission marketing. And ultimately, the you know, as I said, the VIP audiences that we're seeking to build in our databases. And that is not a one and done activity. That is a constant permanent part of marketing's responsibility set now that we constantly have to be looking and auditing our touch points to make sure that we are doing our best to have maximum acquisition uh, of permission to allow for these one-to-one -one relationships that we can we can now power uh, through technology. And whether you're a seeker, an amplifier, or a joiner, there are different uh, kind of motivations as to what you're doing. 
And then the other thing to recognize is that these are not mutually exclusive. I can be all three at the same time. I can be just two of them. I can shift in and out of those relationships with a brand at will. Yeah, and I, I think what I found interesting about them, I, I previously read a book, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book on Tipping Point, and he talks about connectors, mavens, and salesmen. And there's a lot of overlap between what you're discussing there and, and you know, with seekers, amplifiers, and joiners, although I think I think you really hit the nail on the head with that. I hadn't thought of the uh, Gladwell connection, but I'm very familiar with that. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. Amplifiers really are a double-edged sword, aren't they? They are. I mean, they definitely cut both, both ways. Um, you know, they can be positive, they can be negative. You can't always control that. And that then gets into the whole practice area of social media as not just a marketing channel, but as a customer service channel, as a listening channel, uh, you know, through products like our own Radiant 6, um, you know, where you are constantly listening to and monitoring the state of, of, of your particular industry, looking for cues for your products, your services, your brands, so that you can be responding to these folks who are perhaps amplifying in ways that are negative or you know, speaking out to their audience about a bad experience. Things are going to happen. All you can control is the caliber and the speed with which you respond and handle those kind of customer needs or concerns in a timely manner and in a manner that satisfies the customer to the best of your ability. Now, you're going to have some people who are always squeaky wheels. You can't do anything about that. But that's part of the reason why you then build your amplifier audience. You want to build you know, those Twitter followers, you want to build those Facebook fans because you want audiences with audiences out there. I call them kind of white blood cells, right? They are the people that if you are attacked unfairly are going to swoop in and, you know, kind of correct factual misstatements before your team can even get in there before perhaps your legal team is even going to let you uh, you know, tackle some of those issues. You obviously described audiences at core asset. That's really what makes call to action so much more important today than they used to be, isn't it? Absolutely. One of the major tenants that I'm, you know, kind of speaking on as I go out and kind of further the message of audiences, look, all marketing is now direct marketing because of the smartphone. You know, just plain and simple. It's because everybody's sitting with this direct response mechanism in their pocket. Google says about 77% of Americans watch television with another device, either in hand or close at hand. If you are not taking advantage of the fact that the consumer has this device, you're leaving money on the table. And again, this gets to my point, it's not enough to sell in the moment. You also have got to build an audience for the future. And that call to action can be something related to audience, you know, like, you know, uh, go to our website and subscribe now to receive a discount immediately. Or, you know, in the next 24 hours, like you can put some you can put some excitement around it, you know, or it can be, you know, community. You know, every piece of media you have is not only an opportunity to sell or brand now, it's also an opportunity to build audience. And that's not to say that all of them, you know, should be trying to do all three at once, but it is a reminder that we, we do not, we're not just hand, our hands are not only tied to branding and sales. So in part two, uh, you outlined 13 channels. Uh, I think it's a good list of 13 channels. I kind of disagree with the order a little bit. I might have put blogs up a little bit higher. I think YouTube and, and doing videos and production is, is, is a little more difficult than, uh, you know, certainly uh, than a podcast. In podcasts in particular, what was your thinking as to why you moved that down as low as, as you did, as, maybe as lower than, than what you did with YouTube? Compare and contrast those two. Unlike podcasts where you know, the majority of them are consumed uh, by kind of a download culture so that you can listen to them on the go. YouTube is constantly streaming, tune in, listen now, uh, an immediate gratification, be it on a mobile device 
or you know a laptop or a tablet. So YouTube has you know quickly risen to kind of the top of the uh, the food chain, and brands that aren't taking advantage of that as a place to build subscribers, I think, are really missing out. They really should be looking at it from the standpoint of being a media company, and every company is a media company now, thanks to instantaneous worldwide distribution and, and no middleman. And that's where you know I think it gets really, really interesting uh, from you know a brand opportunity standpoint because the emails from YouTube alerting subscribers are being sent out on YouTube's behalf. There's no you know, cost to you. And again, it becomes this wonderful springboard. So I'm a firm believer in podcasters and podcasting too. Right now, it tends to have a bit of a smaller reach. For some reason, the listening is a bit more of a personal medium, a personal channel, if you will, than video consumption. Video is a, a much more passive kind of browsing, spontaneous kind of medium. And also because of the move of you know, Google to get into uh, sports broadcasting, live event broadcasting, and everything else. There's a critical mass there that podcasting uh, doesn't doesn't have the same level of, of kind of penetration. So it doesn't make it, you know, a bad thing. It just makes it a different thing. And in particular industries, if you're dealing with clients who or prospects who are constantly on the road, uh, you know, podcasting could be the smartest thing because obviously if they're driving a vehicle or they're traveling. Uh, they might not need or want to have video screen in front of them, but they're happy to have earbuds in. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think I, I see the point that you're looking at here is it's not so much the, the cost of production, um, although some could argue that YouTube and, and podcast productions are going to be somewhat similar. Uh, you know, I, I actually think that YouTube is a little more expensive, but the the possibility for reach and the capability of reach with the YouTube channel itself is so much greater than what it would be through a podcasting channel, which you, generally speaking, have to develop yourself. Yeah, it's YouTube's fascinating because I get to also see it not only through our company's lens, uh, but also my wife's. She's a craft blogger. And, you know, as somebody who built her brand, uh, it's a website called Craft Test Dummies. It's all about craft product testing and craft product reviews and, you know, just step-by-step -step tutorials. She built it largely with written content and then has moved increasingly into video and is seeing, you know, A, a much younger demographic in YouTube and, you know, B, a lot more immediate pickup and sharing and revenue opportunities uh, through the, advertise the ad sharing on Google than perhaps on the blog. And I think a number of folks are beginning to realize that as well, that there are opportunities there. And there are some folks, uh, Rebecca Lieb of Altimeter Group thinks that, um, you know, video is very much going to only increase in value such that uh, I heard her at South by Southwest say that in a few years, we'll look at 140 characters of text as a luxury uh, because everybody has moved to more visual uh, or, you know, audio-based kind of uh, communication and content creation. Well, it's interesting. You talk about the 140 characters of text and referring to Twitter. How do these channels interact with each other? I mean, is there a should there be a lot of interaction between these? I believe so. It, it, it's, I would call it more cross-pollinization, right? In this day and age, you don't want to be too dependent on any of the major players like Google, like Facebook. And the reason is not because they're bad companies in the least. It's because, look, they've got their own profit motivations. And they've got their own editorial decisions. And so Google changes its search algorithm and literally wipes out entire parts of the search engine optimization industry. It doesn't owe anybody anything. So you could go from number one to number 100. They don't owe you anything legally. But that's going to dramatically damage 
your lead flow if, in fact, that is your principal source of leads. So you diversify in order to keep yourself less susceptible to that kind of ebb and flow of their business model. You know, Facebook changing its newsfeed. When I say cross-pollinization, I want my email to be getting my email subscribers to go to YouTube and subscribe because I want multiple points of contact. And if they're not going to subscribe, I at least want them going over there and viewing it and knowing that I have that channel out there to serve them as well. Similarly, I want them to know about Facebook and I want my Facebook people to come over and subscribe to email because Facebook's newsfeed changes are making it more and more difficult for my organic free content to get distributed, making me more reliant on paid social advertising on Facebook. So I want them in my email subscriber base so I can communicate with them directly. That's the stuff that I really, uh, I think is important. Think of it as cross-pollinization. Think of it as, uh, you know, channel diversification, audience diversification. Those are the things that we really need to be emphasizing in our companies is that is how we build assets. That is how we remain less susceptible to the big changes at the big players like Google and Facebook. I think that one of the things that was interesting was you talked about, you know, one of the ways of building your, your Twitter subscribers is to celebrate your Twitter amplifiers. When you celebrate Twitter amplifiers or amplifiers in any of the media, that, that appeals to the ego piece I was talking about earlier. And if you're appealing to the ego piece, what do they want to do? They want to share that. They want to share the fact that, wow, you know, this brand engaged me. There's a little psychology in it, but it's also just human nature. You know, we want to share with others funny things, humorous things, things that are going to help people. And so you play into that jet stream when you're a brand. Now, the whole rise of real-time media can create some insincerity and some problems when you're trying to play into jet streams that don't belong to you. I believe that, you know, when you embrace social media, again, not just as a as a marketing channel, but a customer service channel, and you're talking with your audience as much as you are talking uh, to it, then good things happen. Let's talk about blogs for a minute. I mean, there's a number of ways that are seeker magnets, but, uh, you know, I mean, uh, YouTube is a great seeker magnet, but blogs can really be a good seeker magnet, can it? Oh, absolutely. Blogs are, um, you know, absolutely that, that magnetic force for search engines to come and index and, uh, again, capture that instantaneous momentary interest for information or entertainment, and then hopefully convert it into, you know, the uh, uh, channels where, you know, wow, I really like this blog's content. I want to subscribe to receive it in the future. Or, oh, this blog has a video. I'm going to watch that video. Oh, I can subscribe to their videos. You know, it's telling me on screen I can subscribe. So you can take advantage of optimizing your blog, knowing the secret mentality, knowing, you know, that wide end of the funnel. How do we get these folks into one of these permission relationships that we can we can further uh, that relationship uh, as we need to. So let's go to part three, and that's kind of the whole implementation part. You talk about the red velvet treatment. That's really a, an implementation of what John Nesbitt called high-tech, high-touch. It, it really is, and it, it, it's born, uh, for those who have not read the book, it's born of our subscribers, fans, and followers uh, mantra that, that I was uh, involved with many years ago. So we looked at, you know, what are we really trying to do? We are not just trying to, at Exact Target, serve our customers. We're trying to help them do right by their customers. So if you look at that, then what we're trying to do and what our customers are trying to do is, is serve, honor, and deliver. And then in the social world, we're also trying to surprise and delight. And so marketing is very much about serving the individual now. 
Uh, what are their needs? What are their interests? How do we you know, tailor our information to them? Honor is then honor their preferences that are expressed to us. So that it's, you know, they say that, hey, we don't want to get email from you. We're not trying to force it down their throats, but we will try and, relate, you know, open relationships elsewhere. Uh, but we're going to honor that individual permission. Uh, we're going to then deliver them timely and relevant content that improves their lives. So the best marketing is a service these days. It feels like a service. You look at, you know, what Amazon does with its upselling. You bought this, you might like this. You know, all of that kind of um, perceptive data-driven marketing. And then, you know, surprise and delight, you know, surprise goes to the access uh, of what social media allows. It allows you kind of behind the red velvet rope. You know, that's exciting for folks. They've never had that level of access. And then the last piece is delight. And that is looking for those opportunities to really satisfy that customer in ways they never, ever would have, you know, suspected. You know, the red velvet touch is all about these odd connections with red velvet and those five principles. So if you think of service, I think of kind of the velvet gloves. If I think of uh, honor, I think of the velvet throne. If I think of uh, deliver, I think of that theater with all those red velvet seats and that red velvet curtain, somebody getting up on stage, ready to give you something that's going to entertain and, and be of the moment. And then, you know, surprise and delight that red velvet rope and uh, uh, red velvet cupcakes, which are kind of inescapable these days as a flavor. So um, it was a fun way and, and, and as a way to just get people thinking about, you know, once you've got the audience, how do you maintain their attention? How do you continue to have them coming back? Because just, just because you've gotten the initial permission doesn't mean you have it forever. You constantly have to earn it. In part three, you've got 27 tactics. Uh, any one tactic jump out over another for you? Or is it just try to do the combination of things that work best for your for your individual situation? Yeah, so those tactics are audience growth tactics, and it's important to recognize that audience growth is a factor of three things. You're trying to grow your size, and size is not, not just the number of people, but it's also the data that you know about them on a permission basis. You're trying to grow uh, the engagement so that their attention is high and that you hopefully get the types of activities that you want from your marketing. And you're also trying to grow their value, you know, your share of wallet, if you will. So those aren't an exhaustive list. Those are the 27 that my word count would have fit in a book. But I think I can sum it up in, in, in one simple word, and that is the ask, right? You, so much of, of building your audience is making sure you, you ask. Ask them to join. Ask them to follow. But do it in ways that are relevant and explain the value to them. Too often you see this in television commercials where, you know, there's a 30 second commercial and the last second has the URL or the hashtag and it goes by so fast that you, you can't even interact with that. So one of my big, you know, soapboxes that I'm on is for the digital folks who own audience to work more hand in glove and really fight for a seat at the table with the brand marketing folks who are doing the, the advertising to help them understand that, look, in order to build our audiences, in order to make sure that your ads resonate better, you need us. And we sure as heck need you because this isn't the last ad you're ever going to run or that we're going to run as a company, God forbid. And so the next time you go out, we want to create more viral buzz for you. And the only way we can do that is if you know we have more email subscribers, we have more Facebook followers or fans, and, and we have more Twitter followers and all these other channels, YouTube subscribers, right? So working with the brand folks um, to make sure that there's integrated calls to action, join your audiences or engage with you in some fashion, uh, I think increases the, the long-term value, 
not only of what that advertising gives to you, but ultimately the customers that you, you acquire. So, you know, the ask, regardless of whether it's TV or other types of, of advertising, I think is extraordinarily important. Now, this is, of course, a developer podcast, and um, it, this is a great education for developers, believe me. But how can developers get involved in building, uh, building PAD? So uh, PAD is my acronym for Proprietary Audience Development, and uh, developers are a critical cog in that machine because they are often developing the websites and the apps uh, in which there need to be calls to action to join these audiences. Case in point, a mobile app. Um, we used to see this far more often in the early days of apps where uh, developers and uh, the, the creatives that they were working with would launch an app and there'd be a lot of excitement and a lot of initial download. And then usage would tailor off and they'd be like, well, we need to contact our users. And then they realized they didn't ask for permission to do push messaging. And they didn't ask for the email address when people downloaded the app so that they could communicate with them in a way that was external to the app in case the folks didn't open it. Developers have to have proprietary audience development in mind in everything they do because sometimes marketing will get so caught up in the creative and, and the launch of the thing that they'll forget some of the nuts and bolts. And audience development is nuts and bolts. It's an always on part of our responsibility set in marketing in any company to make sure that our next audience is even bigger. And so the more that developers can help marketers uh, not only make sure they, they cross those T's and dot those I's, but also optimize the performance of their acquisition methodology. So let's talk about a simple email acquisition form. You know, developers, especially those who are you know, very well-versed in optimization, you know, would do quite well to, you know, certainly look at performance, do A-B testing, you know, see how can we acquire more folks, uh, at least be a part of that, pop, that, that conversation with marketing if they're not driving it. Because you, as somebody who knows the, the nuts and bolts of the code and, and the systems that you're using, might have ideas that would otherwise escape your marketing brethren. And so it's a great place for you to add value and, again, be a part of that team that's building assets. The one thing that I thought about your book as I was reading through it is your book really can apply to people that aren't just in marketing. Uh, anyone wanting to build an audience could use the techniques discussed in this book. And that goes to the point that we're all audiences with audiences now, right? I mean, everybody, you know, I cite a lot of celebrities in there. Celebrities are essentially walking, talking businesses. They're just in business for themselves. And so the more that they can build an audience, the more they can bring that audience to the next project that they do and tell them about the next TV show or movie or what have you. And that that helps the network or the, the producers of that movie so that hopefully that, you know, when they're thinking about the next time they want to work with that actor, they realize, wow, they brought some value to the table over and above what we were paying them to do. Finally, I, I really love the quote near the end of chapter seven. The only way to remain relevant as a marketer is to never stop learning. As you progress, however, do more than focus on what's new focus on what delivers results and what's lasting. The only thing I would change to that was, you know, just replace the word marketing with insert your profession here. I'm glad that resonates. And yeah, it is, it is true. You know, we are in a, uh, an age of constant change and um, it's very easy to get caught up in what people say works or say delivers. Uh, and what you really need to be doing is looking at what works for you and be in a constant testing mode and have the, the content of character to be able to do things that some people think are insane or wrong. If 
Uh, I would have, and if our peers at Exact Target would have listened to what people were saying about email seven years ago, we wouldn't have built the company that we built. And yet, you know, slow and steady, uh, you know, kind of won the race. Email continues to be the overperforming direct marketing channel. It's not the only one. It's not the only place you can build audiences. And, but it is a foundational element. And so, um, you know, I am a firm believer that, uh, you know, I certainly hope I go to my, my deathbed uh, having learned and continuing to learn. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Turning now to the What's Cool segment. And the What's Cool segment, if you didn't recognize it, on March 12th this year, uh, this was the 25th anniversary of the World Wide Web. Uh, so the guys over at the blogs at the Exact Target have put together a uh, nice montage of uh, all the uh, various events that went on this last week and kind of historical background. So uh, take a look at that. Uh, we've got that link in, in the show notes. Well, thanks for listening to the 8th edition of the Exact Target Developer Podcast. I'm Roger Brinkley, and send your feedback to podcast at exacttarget.com.